In the summer of 1937, a young man stepped up to the pulpit to preach his very first sermon. It was in a small Baptist church in Florida where he was a last-minute replacement. The young man was so frightened that he hadn't slept the night before and prepared four different sermons and hoped that one of them could be good enough for at least 20 or 30 minutes of preaching. There were 40 people present that day to hear his sermon, and the young man nervously launched into sermon number one. It seemed to be over almost as fast as it started, so he started the second sermon, and then the third and the fourth. Then he sat down. Eight minutes. That was all that it took to preach all four sermons. He was so humiliated that he decided that day he should never preach again. Yet that night he heard the call of God say to him, Unless, unless you preach the gospel, how will people hear the good news and believe in me? He fell to his knees in that moment and said yes to what God asked of him. This young man was Billy Graham. Billy Graham would one day preach the Christian gospel to over 215 million people in over 185 countries. Billy Graham has been credited with preaching to more people than anyone else in history, not counting the additional millions he has addressed through radio, television, and the written word. Billy Graham was the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. We're ambassadors for Christ. The Bible says we're a peculiar people set apart under Christ. And we're to be shining witnesses. Unless... Unless Billy Graham had decided to listen to the prompting of the Spirit. What the video just referred to is a man who most of us know, who probably is not only the greatest evangelist of the 20th century, but probably will go down as one of the greatest evangelists in church history. One thing the video doesn't tell us is this, that now because of online media and the written and radio and television, he's actually preached to two billion people. Unless, unless that Sunday school teacher had talked to him, unless that other preacher had preached and listened to God's voice and led him to Christ. Unless, unless. If Billy Graham was sitting here today talking to us in late 90s as he is, he would tell us that there is a message that is so important that people can be reconciled to God. And he spent his life pleading with the world, saying, unless you meet Jesus, there's hopelessness. Into our world, like he, we are sent. You know, there's two grand stories that are playing out in our lives in this church. They're playing out in your neighbors, in your friends, in your enemies, in your co-workers. There are two grand meta-narratives that the West has embraced, and both of them are so very dangerous. Michael Horton describes one like this. He says, one of the great beliefs now in the West is this, that we come from nowhere, and we're going nowhere, and we'll just improvise between birth and death. Let me write another one for you this morning. There's another narrative that's just as strong, if not stronger than that one, and it's just as bad. Many others, actually the majority, say we actually do come from somewhere, and we are going somewhere called the afterlife, and yes, there is a God or something out there, and we may not improvise between birth and death, 
But we must be good, and we must be moral, and we must be religious. And when we face our maker, he will like us because of what we have done. The first worldview is the worldview of atheists, agnostics. And the other is the majority of people on earth, the semi or deeply religious. And then, of course, there's the wash in between. And yet, like I preached on Easter Sunday morning, if you choose to take either of these roads, you are left actually in the same place. You are left with the same burden. You end up having to carry everything on your shoulders. You are actually left with the most cruel of mistresses, self-sufficiency. See, unless we as Christians commissioned by Jesus share that there actually is a third option and a third way, unless we not only remind the world by our own personal walk, but also by our words and show them that there is good news, unless we continue systematically to invite people into places and spaces where there is a guaranteed meeting between them and the author and the founder of the third way, they will continue to believe those two other options. Unless we share... And unless we invite, how will they know? As Joanna prayed this morning, I'm preaching out of Romans 10. If you weren't part of our community in 2011, I'd encourage you to go back to our site or on iTunes or Vimeo and and watch and listen to the whole series we did for weeks out of the book of Romans. We actually did the whole book, and it's a powerful book, a life-changing book, a thought-provoking book. Actually, it's a worldview-shaping book. As, as one person wrote, if you want to get that punch of Romans, here it is. You want to understand Genesis to Revelation? Read the book of Romans. It's the summary of the whole story. But if you want to understand chapter 10 this morning, you got to read chapter 9. Chapter 9 of Romans is powerful, all-consuming, it's clear. It's all about God's role in salvation to the whole church as a people and individuals. It says salvation is a God thing, that God elects and predestines and calls. He gives salvation. He raises people from the dead. And yet chapter 10 calls us to respond. It points out human responsibility, the sovereignty of God on one hand, and free will. That little issue we all agree on, right? (laughs) Once a famous preacher named Spurgeon, the mega pastor of his day in the Victorian era, a person came up and asked him, knowing he was a famous Calvinist who cried out, salvation is by God alone. And said, how do you reconcile the two of God's intervention and our own human free will? And he smiled and he said, and I love this response, well, I don't try to reconcile them. See, I don't need to reconcile friends. Got it so right. As we're about to say, neither position ceases to be true because we can't accept godly paradox. Paul, in this passage in 9 and 10 is serious. He, he's crying out and saying, unless God acts, there is only darkness. Unless people hear the good news, there is only darkness. If it is not shared, there is only darkness. And if you understand the, the pain and, and the visceral experience Paul is experiencing as he writes this, listen closely this morning, please. Because Romans 10 is about Paul working out why his own family his own friends, his own ethnic group, the people he feels most comfortable around, the people he grew up with, the Jewish people, as a majority have said no 
to Jesus. It's like many of you here, you have met Jesus Christ and yet the closest people to you have said no. Paul is working out pain, trying to understand why they would reject Jesus, who is the Messiah, who obviously is the King of the Jews, the long-awaited one, the whole fulfillment of the Old Testament. But before we get to that, let's take a moment to remind ourselves of what Paul teaches about the good news. See, we need to have a clear picture of what the good news is out of the book of Romans before we get to Romans 10. Listen closely. See, you need to know what you're called and commissioned to share before you share anything. See, unless you know the gospel explicitly this morning, you will end up sharing something that is wrong. It's like I was hanging out with my daughter the other day, and I was in bed with her, my three-year-old, and I was telling her the story of Jonah. And I, I wasn't reading it. I was just, you know, preaching at her. Not really. I was telling her. And she was looking at me with her pigtails, and, and I said, you know, and he ran from God. She said, mm-hmm. And then, and I said, and they were going to throw him out the boat. Mm-hmm. And then I said, so as they threw him out the boat, she said, that's no problem, Daddy. A submarine will catch him. I went, um, Okay. It's like at Christmas when I was talking to my other daughter about Mary and Joseph and suddenly Dora the Explorer ended up in the Jesus story. I was completely confused. (laughs) I think if my son could talk, Thomas would bring the wise men. (laughs) And as I was sitting there listening to my children interpret scripture and add things, that's great and fine because they're learning. But see, we can't add or subtract anything from the gospel. This has to be crystal clear because as the message is declared today, unless we invite, unless we share, but what are we sharing? If you've got your Bible this morning, physically, virtually, here, if you are online, I'd love you to turn there too. Romans 2.11. Paul in one line, Paul in one line sort of lets loose this all-consuming declaration that literally breaks down the power, the inappropriate power of history and race and religion. And he says these words, ready? God does not show, say it loud, what? Favoritism. God does not show favoritism. Now, Paul is trying to show the Jewish audience that they they have a need for the gospel, and yet they don't sense it because they say, well, ethnically, we're chosen by God, and and we're really religious, and personally, we're religious, so our sin problem is dealt with, and, and and yet it's no different for us. Our intelligence, our position, our many acts of kindness, our history, our religiosity, thoughts like, well, I really am spiritual. I give so much up for others. None of them will move God. Our wealth, power, position, or race, color, nationality, heritage, philosophy, education, being deeply religious or irreligious count for nothing. Jew or no Jew, right-believing, wrong-believing, the measuring rod will be the same for all of us. Or as one scholar said about this verse, simply put, God will deal with all of us with faultless discrimination. See, we read this verse and we all suddenly feel good about ourselves. Well, he doesn't show favoritism. That means we're all okay. No, this is an unbelievably damning and scary verse. Why? Because he is actually saying that everyone is in the same boat and everyone's in the same trouble, no matter what you are or what you have done. God, in his holiness, does not look over any sin. God does not show discrimination or favoritism. 
Later, he says this. You flip over to Romans 3, 9. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? He says, well, not at all. We've already made the charge that, that Jews and non-Jews are all alike under sin. Brothers and sisters, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Hebrew people, my family, the Israelites, is that they might be saved. He wants this church he's writing to, made up mostly, by the way, of non-Jews in Rome, not to misunderstand his understanding or his teaching. He doesn't want them to get excited or delighted or even anti-Semitic. He's like, no, don't you understand? It is my desire. It is my will. It is with my inmost being. My heart cries out. It is broken. I intercede for my family because they've missed God in flesh. They've missed the one that we have hoped for and prayed for for a millennium. But understand this too. Why have they rejected him? One wrote, the Jews' assumption of superiority in this time over non-Jews is not a matter of ego or personal boasting, and let me add another category, nor racism. See, they said, out of all the nations of the earth, God chose us, true. So surely the Jews reasoned, as God's chosen people were immune from his judgment, God's tolerance and kindness will always cause him to overlook our sin, not theirs, but ours. And Paul says, not on your life. You, as a religious Jew, are no different than the person down the street sacrificing to a demon god in a Roman temple. Do you understand how offensive that would be? How, how vilely sounding that would be? And Paul says, don't you understand? God does not show favoritism. Look at Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one, no one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. It doesn't matter if you possess the law or, or you have position because you're a Jew before God or because your performance is connected to the law. Paul says you cannot be saved by having the law, knowing the law, or obeying the law. We are never saved by what we do. But the law shows us one thing. One of its primary, not its only, but one of its primary purposes is the law when you read it. If you just open the Ten Commandments and honestly just read it, it shows us our sin. It shows us our separation, our need for an external Savior. See, we become conscious of our sin and we see the holiness of God. As I've preached so many times here before, don't you understand God did not wake up one day and go, mm, I don't like adultery. Because I just, no, no, because he's a covenant-keeping God. He says, I don't like murder because I'm a life-giving God. I don't like covetedness because I'm a gift-giving God. See, the law is not external from God. It is his DNA expressed. And when you look at it, you suddenly see how far we've drifted. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said the principal point of the law is not to make you feel better but actually to make you terribly worse. When you read the law, he says it should humble you and terrify you and bruise you and break you. Why? Because God's a thug? No, because he wants to drive you somewhere. And, and where does he want to drive you? He wants you to seek comfort, not in sex, not in money, not in power, not in darkness. No, to Jesus you go. Thank God for his law. Thank God for his relentless, loving confrontation of our problem, the sickness and the death that touches all of us. And oh, thank God he gives us an answer that's not found in us. Amen? Look at Romans 3.22. See, these verses, if you grew up in church, 
now have so much more power when you hear the whole story. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to, any, to all who believe. See, there's no difference between Jew and non-Jew. Here it is. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Paul at this moment has said, no matter how many religious things you've done, no matter what you've done, no matter your ethnicity, your religious background, or lack of it, None of it can cover the sin you were involved in, you are involved in right now, or you will be involved in. Why? Because he's trying to tell us we need someone else named Jesus. Now turn to Romans 10. With that summary of the gospel, now listen to Paul's unpacking, and then let us listen carefully to what Jesus is trying to say to us as a community. Notice he starts with a repetition. Brothers and sisters, he says it again. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites, my family, is that they might be saved. He wants them to experience life. There's no judgment against his friends. He's praying and begging and weeping before God that his own family would experience the thing they supposedly want and pray for. See, Paul's heart here is always the starting place for revolution in church. Paul is broken for the lost. Unless we are broken, C4, for people. Unless we literally ask God, through the Spirit of God, to put other glasses on so we see that people are deeply loved by God. Yes, even the ones you hate, struggle with, the worst neighbors, they are loved by God and they're deeply lost without Jesus. If you do not see that, you will never be moved to share. Why did Paul put up with his family? They tried murdering him. They publicly removed everything that he owned and loved. Why would he keep doing this? Because he's some sadist? No, because he understands their worth eternity. You will put up with so much crap in someone else's life if you see that they're loved by God and God wants to meet them. But you will not do it if you see it from just you. Paul says, oh, my prayer for my family is that they would know. But then he says, let me tell you the problem with my family. Here it is. Verse 2. I can testify about how zealous they are for God, but see, their zeal is not based in knowledge. What a brilliant description He says, my family, just like I used to be deeply religious, good people trying to obey God, I mean, they would put most of us in C4 to shame, right? They would give money. They wouldn't play around. They gave exactly what the Bible said. They changed their budgets like that. God first. They fasted more. They read their Bibles more. They had more memorized than probably all of us put together by 12. And all those things, by the way, are good. We should be fasting, and we should be generously giving above and beyond, and we should know our scriptures, but see, here's the thing. You don't do those things to meet God. You do those things after the wedding's taken place. See, being religious and really good and obeying lots, being zealous, will never save you. You know, at this moment, think about it. Sit with this. There are billions of people at this moment, right now, in these next 20 minutes, I mean right now, that are good people around the world. Many of them we know, many more we don't. 
They're deeply faithful. They're really good. Some of them are religious. Some of them are not. And they're really kind. They're nominal Christians. They're Christians by name. They're Muslims. There's Hindus. They're Wiccans. They're Sikhs. They're Baha'i. They're agnostics. They're atheists, just to name a few. And then we hear Paul present the gospel, and our natural humanity says, well, I can't believe this. I mean, I deeply struggle to believe that, John, you're saying that good and honest and sincere people are lost if they don't know Jesus. Let me tell you, my atheist friend is way nicer than anyone in my connect group. But see, sincerity is not the starting point. It is for our culture, but it isn't for God. Truth is. And the deeply honorable and religious community of Paul's day reveals the great trouble everyone is in when we trust, when our worldview teaches us, when our actions and belief lead us down the path that we really instinctually believe there is a ladder and if we work hard enough and good enough, God will love us and accept us when we are full of zeal, enthusiasm, passion, fervor, eagerness, keenness, but it is not grounded in knowledge. It leads you away from God and leads you to you. Zealous people can be lost, and it's a matter of life and death. Since they did not know, verse 3, the righteousness of God, notice, they sought to establish their own, and they did not, notice the word, submit. This is rebellion. They did not submit to God's righteousness. See, the religious Jews of the day would be horrified to think that God sees them no different than the people who tried building the Tower of Babel to pierce the heavens. But God says, you are no different. Your religiosity is like building a tower because you keep thinking you can do this. They said no to God and yes to themselves. And yet Paul is coming and he's saying, don't you understand? Your righteousness does not work. You need to go to someone else. And his name is Jesus. Why? Because he is called, everyone ready, the righteous what? One. Verse 4, Christ, he says, is the culmination of the law. So there may be righteousness for anyone who believes. Righteousness, by the way, is a great old word that means to be right legally with God and right relationally with God. It means that the wrath of God that we deserve and the sin we've all committed has been diverted from us over on Jesus. And it means we get to walk with him again like we used to walk with him in the garden. And he says, don't you understand? This is given to anyone who wants this. Jesus is the culmination of the law, the consummation of the law. He's the climax of the law. And he doesn't throw away the law. He fulfills it. I love when Chuck Swindoll preached on this. He said, you want to know the power of Jesus? You really want to understand what he's done for you? Think about him and the law. He preached Jesus achieved the demands of the law. He kept it perfectly. Jesus fulfilled the intent of the law that he pleased the Father with perfect obedience. Jesus completed the purpose of the law in that he fulfilled all of its requirements Jesus executed the covenant of the law in that he claimed the rewards of obedience. Jesus perfected the requirements of the law in that he exceeded the expectations of the law. And Jesus terminated the need for the law in that he became the word of God for us. This is a good amen moment. Jesus is worthy of our worship, isn't he? When you see that. Jesus never broke the Ten Commandments. Ever. The great command that summarizes all the others, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus never broke it 
once. That's why Paul can say he is the culmination of the law. But why did, why did Paul's family and why did Paul for a period say no to Jesus? Why do most good people on earth say no to Jesus? Because Jesus threatens self-sufficiency and the belief that you can do something about your own condition. He steps into us and says, pride has no place in front of a holy God. See, if you don't believe Jesus is God, you won't trust him. If you don't believe that Jesus has fulfilled something that you don't believe in, you won't trust him. You won't put your your life into his hands because you actually don't think you're in trouble, but you are. We all are. Paul keeps going here, and this is what he begins to do. Keep with me. He begins to unpack all of this from the Old Testament. Now, again, I keep saying this from the pulpit. The more your Old Testament is read, the more you will be a better Christian because we do not separate old from new. It is one word, right? And what's very significant is we lose the power of Romans 10 because we don't read our Old Testament. Look at verse 5. He says, Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. You go, well, what's that? It's Leviticus 18.5. You go, that's very technical, John. Who cares? Let me tell you why it matters. Moses in Leviticus 18.5 says to the people, When you go into the promised land, everyone ready? When you go into the promised land, if you keep obeying God, he will bless you. Here's his point to his family, the religious Jews. You were commanded when you entered into the promised land to obey God. God now is commanding you to obey him. How is he commanding you to obey him? Believe on Jesus, and you will enter the promised land. What's the promised land in the New Testament? It is eternal life. The promised land in the Old Testament was a foreshadow for everything that's going to happen in us, in our hearts, and what's coming in the new heavens and the new earth. you got to understand, when a religious Jew would hear this quote, it was a slap in the face. They got it. Paul is saying, as Moses, representing God, commanded you to obey him, so I am doing the same. You are disobeying God by not trusting on Jesus. You should know better. Gentiles don't even have the scriptures, and you do. And then he keeps on going. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart. Now just stop right there. Incomplete sentence. Just stop. Do you see that? Do not say in your heart. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 9. Why does it matter? I'll tell you why. Because in Deuteronomy 9, Moses says to the people of God, as they're about to enter into the promised land, or the thought of it coming, he says, don't you ever, ready, say in your heart that you are entering into the promised land because you are better, special, because you have done something. Don't you know the promised land is God's work alone? Don't you know that you're going into the promised land not by might, not by power, but, my, my, by, my, my, but by my spirit, says the Lord? He quotes this to say to them, as Moses said to the people back then, don't you ever think it was up to you to get in the promised land? He says, and yet now you think you will enter into the ultimate promised land by what you do? No, no, it is Jesus who lets you go there because it's his land. Paul's not done. In the next few verses, he quotes now Deuteronomy 30. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is bring Christ down. Who will descend to the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? No, no. But what does it say? Deuteronomy 30. The word is near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. 
Simply stated, this is good news if you didn't catch it. You don't need to go to heaven or hell to find Jesus. He's come near to us now. Salvation doesn't belong to some super spiritual upper class who've taken some mystical journey to heaven or hell or are super profound and they get a notice. See, the gospel of Jesus was and is available, accessible, and simple to all who God calls and all who want on it. God came for us when we could not get to him. See that little phrase, the word is near to you? Does that ring a bell? What series did we just finish? Out of what book? Say it loud. John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, verse 14. And the Word became what? Flesh. And made His dwelling among us. The Word is near to us. I love Eugene Peterson's translation. And God moved into the neighborhood. See, this is Paul's point. You can look on Jesus and you can absolutely know. John 3, 16, for God so of the world, he sent his son. And Paul is saying, oh, listen, please, family. Listen, everyone on earth. God, from his view, has finally acted to make himself known. If you look on Jesus, you have no excuse anymore because you now know who I am, what I am, and what I'm about to do, says God. He says, how do you meet this God? How do you meet the only true God? He says it, and we know this verse if you do church for a long time, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess. Confess is an interesting word in our culture, wouldn't you say? We live in a world where you can say anything and get away with it, right? I mean, you can, you can say something on a blog or online and it's totally false, but you said it with your mouth. People lie all the time. You do. I do. It's called exaggeration. If you confess with your mouth, does that mean I just get to say Jesus is Lord and suddenly I have fire insurance? No. See, confession here means so much more, church. Confession means, it's like the wedding ring analogy. What has already happened in you is now being outwardly expressed. I am married, and this symbolizes this marriage. What you confess with your mouth must line up with what's in your heart. And what does Paul say you must confess? Well, Jesus is Lord. Some of you are about to find out in the next three minutes you're not a Christian and you think you are. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? And number one means that you confess that Jesus actually is Lord, i.e. God. It is the declaration that you are saying with your innermost being these truths that Jesus shares the same name and nature and holiness and authority and power and majesty as the Father. Why? Because he's equal with and one with the Father. Do you believe that? Also, Jesus as Lord means that he owns us. It is, it's a willful cheerful acknowledgement that we are slaves to God because we want to be owned by Jesus because he runs us better than we would ever run ourselves. Christianity is a movement of loving slavery. If you are not a slave to Jesus, there is a great question if you know him. If you confess with your mouth that he is God, if you confess with your mouth and it is in your heart that he owns you and his promptings and will are significant and supreme. And if you believe that God physically raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
See, our faith, unlike so many others, is not rooted in mythology. It is rooted in history. We believe that Jesus existed. We believe he suffered under Pontius Pilate. We believe he was crucified, died, and buried. We can say that Apostles' Creed with authority. You see, we believe Jesus physically died, and like I preached a while ago, not for three seconds, not 20 seconds on some operating table, and he saw some light and came back. Not one day, not two days, no, no, three days dead in the ground, and he physically came back. If you believe God did that, you will be saved. But if you don't, you will not be saved. Do you see the gravity of this? For it is with your heart you believe and you are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and you are saved. Justified is a great word we should all know. Being made righteous, acquitted, not guilty anymore. Jesus says you are not guilty because I absorbed all that was supposed to be upon you. See, it's like this. It's like Jesus showing up at your house and saying, could we have a chat? I'm sure you'd invite him in. And when he comes in, he says, can I have your credit cards, please? I'd like the MasterCard and the Visa. Yeah, even the Hudson Bay. I'll take that one too. He says, can I see your line of credit, please? Oh, really? Dave, Dave Ramsey, he'll help you with that. Okay. Can I have your mortgage payment, please? He says, we're going to go talk to your creditors right now. And Jesus walks in and says, okay, I'm taking money out of my bank account, and I've paid it all off. It's done. Go home. Enjoy your home. Have a barbecue. And we go, what? But this is about eternity. Have you ever considered that God never forgets anything? That for eternity, even we who are in heaven, God will know our sin? And yet because of Christ Jesus, he will never use it against us? Is that not grace on steroids? Unless you confess, unless you believe, you will not be saved. But anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, right? But look at the verse in 11 before we end. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. God, out of his sovereignty, chooses to remove shame. God, out of his sovereignty, chooses to remove disgrace. God, out of his sovereignty, chooses to remove embarrassment. God, out of his sovereignty, chooses to remove dishonor. God, out of his sovereignty, says no to humiliation. God, in his sovereignty, says no to indignation. God, in his sovereignty, says enough of infamy. God says sin is canceled. For there's no difference between Jew and non-Jew. The same Lord is the Lord of all who richly blesses us and and call on him. And all who call on him, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul ends this little section with four simple questions. They're rhetorical. But they are actually the questions that summarize the heart of today's message and summarize actually this whole series. Unless you... No, this is not the time to get distracted. Unless you, unless we see for, all choose willingly to continue to invite people to church more and more. Unless you and we choose to share the good news, how will they know? How will your friends know? How will your parents know? How will your sisters and brothers know? How does your aunt know? How does your uncle know? How does your cousins know? How do your enemies know? How does your neighbors 
And fellow students know that God loves them and they're estranged from him and there's consequence to all this, but there's an answer. How do they know unless you invite and unless you share? Who else do you think is going to be sent? How then, verse 14, can they call upon the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one who they have not heard of? And, and how can they hear without someone else telling them? And, and how can anyone preach unless they are sent? But as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful, how revelatory, how, how stunning, how color-giving is it when the gospel is given. You know, I've been part of this church since I was 15. And in the last little while, there have been periods in our history But in the last little while, I've been so excited and delighted to see that there is a shift towards people openly sharing the gospel and also inviting. Easter was a a, a climax of that, but it's it's continuous. But I want to say to all of us this morning, as Dave has preached for the last two weeks, unless we continue to keep on believing, unless we keep on listening and obeying the promptings of the Spirit, and remember, unless we keep on sharing, what God is uniquely doing among us for this season will come to an end. Here's the heartbeat of what I want to share with you today. If you want to evaluate why you struggle sharing sometimes, beyond fear, which we all have, listen closely. Because this is a moment where other people's lives hang in the balance. Unless you know everyone's condition, C4, unless we really see people deeply loved by God and deeply lost without Him, you will never be moved to share because you'll think there's another avenue. Do you really believe in your heart that every person you know at this moment that you love or don't love or have a relationship with that is not a genuine follower of Jesus is lost to hell forever? Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe that and you call yourself a Christian, then there's no gas in your tank. There's no impetus to go and share. You're not concerned. You're not weeping. You're not broken because you in your heart of hearts think there's got to be another good way out of this because people are just good. Let me declare to you today, if you remove the idea of eternity and lostness, you will never share. You will never get out of your comfort zone because instinctually you will think something else is going to work. It's not. Unless we see what the scripture says is true, that every person by themselves is lost and is spiritually dead and blind, unless you believe that with your heart, you will never be burdened to share. Listen, our responsibility is to share. God's responsibility is to bring salvation. But the point is we have to be in the place where we invite and share, not out of duty or compulsion, but because we love people. If you don't believe in people's condition, You'll never be broken like Paul. Unless you're broken for people, you'll never share. If you just continually see them through your eyes and what they do to you or what they don't do for you, if you never ask for heaven to give you eyes to see why your neighbor, who's such a jerk, is lost, you just won't care. Unless you see people's condition biblically. Unless you see people as lost and broken. Unless you see people through God's view that they're made in the image of God and they're valuable, you will not share. Here's another one. Unless you pray 
Do you notice how Paul in Romans 10 starts with prayer? He says, this is my prayer. See, don't you understand? Prayer is the place where the will of God is invoked on earth. Prayer is the place, the most normal, boring, seemingly non-effective prayers of average Christians can change history. Prayer is the place where we're given unnatural courage to share the gospel. Prayer is the place where people are moved from life to death, death to life. Prayer is the place where blinders come off people so they can see Jesus. If you do not pray, when you invite and share, they will not respond. Unless you see people's condition. Unless you are broken for people. Unless you are in the place where you see people through God's view. Unless you pray. But here's another one, unless you know what you believe. If, if what I've said to you this morning is highly offensive or deeply confusing to you, and you've been a Christian for a while, there is a major problem because you don't completely understand the gospel. You need to, in a childlike way, understand the lostness of humanity and the redemption of humanity. We need to understand the bad side of the good news so the good side of the good news is good. If you don't know the gospel... How can you share it with someone? Unless we keep on sharing. You know, the motive that we have to check as leaders praying for large amounts of people is that. But see, at this moment of Jesus' as Dave preached two weeks ago, coming unique visitation on a church where he gets palpably close. You and I, we should be inviting people more than we ever have. Not because we're special or good and not because we just want big numbers. Don't you understand? When you invite someone to church, though we're broken and messed up and we're political and have all this stuff, listen, don't you understand? When God's word is preached, it does not turn void. This is a guaranteed place of meeting. When you sit with someone and share the good news with them, it's a guaranteed place we need to keep on sharing. And by the way, you will not continue to do this unless you remember that your job description is that you are sent. Can I point out the last verse? And how will they know unless someone is sent? We are all sent. Are you waiting for a memo? Well, you just got it. Here's the text from heaven. You're sent. It doesn't matter if you're powerful or brilliant or not. It doesn't matter if you have the gift of evangelism or not. The Lord bring 30, 40, more of those people will take them. We're sent. And how beautiful it is when someone in humility, without arrogance, shares the good news of Jesus. Unless we send ourselves under Christ under the power of the Spirit, unless we invite, unless we share, how will they know? How will they know? Such a significant moment because so many of you are doing it and I want to encourage you. See, this series is about keeping in step with what is already happening. This is not a new conversation. This is a continuing conversation. And for you who've stepped out of your comfort zones and you've done this, Lord bless you. For the rest of us, oh God, help us. But I want to say, this is a moment in our history where as we continue to invite and we continue to pray and we continue to ask for God's courage, he is going to bring so many to Jesus Christ. But we are the hands of Christ. We are in the mouth of Christ. We are the feet of Christ. Don't you understand his sovereignty is worked out through his church. We must now go.
We must continue to invite. We must remember we are sent. Let me end with this as the band comes up. This, this summer is interesting. Isn't it good it's almost summer, everyone? <laughs> I think we'd all agree with that. This summer, you know, church sort of winds down. I get that. We do cottage and life, and we try to recover in our crazy culture. But I want to tell you what I'm preaching on, or we are preaching on all summer, for a reason. Uh, after we finish unless we're going to do the book of uh, oh, Malachi. Dave, yell at it. Haggai, thank you. Haggai, Janice, thank you. For three weeks. A book that probably you haven't read through lots lately. And then we're going to spend the summer doing one thing. Ten weeks. We're going to go through every theme of what God has done for us. We're going to spend our whole summer walking through our identity in the new work of Jesus. We are going to go through every reason why we are children of God and we're forgiven and we're a new people and we're the temple of God. We're going to spend our whole summer being encouraged and being called to live out of our new identity. But let me tell you, this is the summer to invite as many prodigals back to church, as many broken people, spiritually, mentally, emotionally messed up people, bring them to church, demonized people, bring them to church. I'm telling you why. Because all summer long, we are going to be proclaiming God's glory, and what he gives when we meet him like this. We are going to be proclaiming all summer in this church the identity that comes from heaven that overcomes everything we can't overcome in our own culture. This is a summer for us to say, I'm inviting as many people as I can who hate church, love church, never heard about Jesus. Every week, we are going to proclaim something true that happens to the human heart. My challenge to you is to share and invite. Summer, have a great cottage season, everyone. But don't forget, eternity is still at stake in the middle of the Muskokas and the Korthas. Everything's still at stake. So let us go to prayer and end as we, pre- we prepare to respond. Number one, I pray for some among us who do not know Jesus, that you, Holy Spirit, would now come Enlighten upon them, be close to them. And you would begin to move them from darkness to light, that they would be able to confess with their heart and their mouth, Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and they would be justified and saved. For many of us, Lord, if we have diluted your gospel or started believing the subtle lie that something else will work out, we repent. Oh God, adjust our theology around Scripture. But lastly, I pray, Holy Father, Holy Son, hear my prayer on behalf of the people I serve. Send your Holy Spirit upon all of us in this room, all of those online, all the women at the retreat right now, our children and teens. Send the Spirit of Jesus upon us to give courage and send us out in a power that we will know is not from ourselves. And we with expectation pray that many will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray now in the name of Jesus Christ that the lie of religion would die in Durham and the lie of secularism would die in Durham and would be replaced by the third 
preferred way, which is found in Jesus Christ and his eternal life and the true fulfillment of the promised land. Oh God, renew us in this church. Oh God, revive us in this church. And oh God, awaken, awaken this community to the reality of their lostness and the reality of Jesus. Send us out, and not just us, send every church out that loves Jesus. Do not relent until thousands meet Jesus Christ. This is our prayer in this generation. We say this in the strong name of Jesus. And everyone says, amen. Let's stand. And this song, as we are about to sing, is a confession of this faith you've heard proclaimed to you today.